Let's pray. We recognize, O Lord, that this is the day that you have made, and we rejoice and be glad in it. I think that verse has never been more relevant than it is today. But Lord, you have called us to rejoice, not only in everything, but for everything. Because you are God, and you who are holy and righteous and altogether good, rule over what is happening in our world right now. And so we bless your name, and we thank you that we still have the freedom and opportunity to meet together, to worship together, to pray together, to read your word and listen to it expounded. Oh, Father, I pray that we would drink it in today. And Lord, I, I know from experience just this week of, of studying this text that it will be one that will step on the toes of every believer who hears it. And it was intended to do so by the Apostle Paul. But Father, may we have grace to receive it and to apply it and to plead with you to change us conforming us more to the image of Christ. That's what we long for, and so that's what we ask for, and we believe you will be pleased in it, and so we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The soul-satisfying grace of God should make us gracious toward one another. In February of this year, my family and I made the long trek from Fort Worth, Texas, to Cape May, New Jersey, to watch our son, Wesley, graduate from Coast Guard's basic training. When, we left, when he left home eight weeks earlier, he was a shaggy-headed teenager dressed in blue jeans, tennis shoes, and a nondescript blue polo shirt. We knew that upon arrival at the, basic, at the base for basic training, he would have been gifted a haircut, compliments of Uncle Sam. And we had been told that after boot camp, not only his hair, but his walk and his posture would be noticeably dis different than it was before. And so we expected that when we got to see him for the first time, we would probably notice some outstanding modifications to his appearance. But honestly, nothing could have prepared us for the change we were about to behold when we laid eyes on him for the first time. Standing in the courtyard under the bright winter sun in New Jersey, we heard them coming, the whole company of them, marching in perfect unison, chanting, almost singing a cadence that we barely could understand. And as these young seamen marched past the throng of family and friends who had gathered to see the spectacle, we caught a glimpse of him, our son, Wesley. But he hardly resembled Wesley at all. This was the new and improved Wesley. <laughs> to our amazement, that shaggy-headed teenager we sent off to boot camp eight weeks earlier had now suddenly become a soldier. 
dressed in his formal blue, perfectly pressed Bravo uniform, complete with glistening black shoes and white service cap. He looked so sharp, his mother and I barely recognized him. I thought about that event this week as I was working through the text before us. Last week, we heard Paul declare that when a man or woman comes into relationship with Jesus Christ, they strip themselves of the old clothes of the former life, and they throw them all away. This week, Paul picks up with that same refrain, only this time his theme is it's not about what we will put off or should put off, but that the things which we are to put on. If there were a uniform that all Christians should wear, what would it look like? Well, Paul is prepared to tell us here as we read about it in Colossians chapter 3. In fact, why don't we do that? Let's stand together and read Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, these things put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. Paul's theme in this section of his letter is that the spiritual changes that take place in the believer's heart in salvation will manifest themselves in the believer's life after salvation. A changed heart always produces a changed life. A changed heart always produces changes in our thinking. A changed heart always changes our behavior. Where there is life, there is fruit. And the fruit that Paul is concerned about here in this passage is how we relate to one another. How do we, do we relate to others? The way Christians behave toward one another identifies, identifies us like a uniform, identifies the country that a soldier serves or what team an athlete belongs to. We know, for example, that he plays for the Dallas Cowboys if we see the star on his jersey. And we know if he belongs to Christ, if he belongs to Christ, we will see what? What will we see? There'll be something that we see. What should we see in the life of a believer as he or she relates to others? Well, this is the question that Paul seeks to answer. 
Now, in Colossians 3, 12, Paul, instead of jumping right in to talk about the appropriate attitudes and behaviors, he rather takes a, a, just a, a moment in this text to talk about our identity instead. And he does that first, and he does that purposefully. Only after he rehearses our, our, our unity in Christ, our identity in Christ, will he move on to the 14 parts of the uniform that every Christian should wear. And some of the parts of the uniform are attitudes, others are behaviors, and I'm not sure how many we will actually work through this morning, time permitting. I've included seven of them in your bulletin. These are seven virtues that should mark the way Christian people relate to one another. And here they are, the first seven. We should be guided by the virtue of compassion, the virtue of kindness, the virtue of humility, the virtue of meekness, the virtue of patience, the virtue of forbearance, and the virtue of forgiveness. Now, I guarantee you we're not going to make it through all seven, but I hope to make it through at least a few this morning, and that itself will be enough for us to go home and repent about, believe me. <laughs> but first of all, as I've already said, we need to talk about identity, the believer's identity. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God were identified as distinct from the world by the law that God had given them and their obedience to it. Israel was not merely a nation. They were, and listen to this phrase very carefully, they were a chosen people. They were a chosen people. And while the Christian church has not been given a new slate of laws to obey, there are certain kinds of attitudes and behaviors that should mark us as a unique people in this world. They will know that you are Christians by your what? By your love, and, and that's one. And maybe the most important one. And this brings us to Paul's statement that grounds all of these virtues in a common identity. And this is what I want you to see here. We're going to be doing this for at least two Sundays. But I want you to see that these are, this is not a, just a list of virtues that are built one on top of another. No, it's more like spokes in a wheel. They all point back to the hub, which is your identity in Christ. All of this, every one of them, comes out of your new identity in Christ. So he says in chapter 3, verse 12, to these New Testament believers, put on then as, listen carefully, God's chosen people. These are God's New Testament chosen ones. Beloved, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a new identity. Whatever the old one was just got scrapped. You are now primarily one of God's people. You belong to him. You wear his name. You represent him in the world. You are numbered among God's chosen people, the elect of God. And when those terms are used, chosen, elect, and other terms like that, listen, these were not put into the Bible they weren't written to provoke controversy. They were, they were written 
to give us hope and to provide motivation. In the past several weeks, we've learned a lot about our union with Christ. When God thinks about you as a person, he doesn't think of you according to how you have lived, but according to how Jesus lived. God thinks of you as fully identified with Christ. Now, don't get, don't get bothered by the repetition here. I'm saying this again and again and again because Paul never lets up on it. And just go ahead and change to a different Pauline letter, and you will not escape it. You are in Christ. You are in Christ. You belong to him. And so God thinks of us as fully identified with Christ. And the phrase that Paul loves to use, among some others, when speaking of our union with Christ is in Christ, and sometimes with Christ. And I want to demonstrate this for you just for a moment, because I think it's relevant. Turn to the left a little bit, go to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm not going to read much here, but verses 3 through 11 I want us to refresh on what it means to be God's New Testament chosen people. What does it mean to be one of God's New Testament chosen people? And this is what he says, Ephesians 1, verse 3. Listen, listen carefully to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, watch this, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, that is, in Christ. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on the earth. And that is only through verse 11. He has more to say about what it means for you to be one of God's people. You are so unspeakably blessed. It is beyond our, our full comprehension. One day, I think even when we see God face to face, though we will be perfected, I still wonder if we will fully comprehend the glory of what we have now that we are, in God's eyes, in Christ. You see, beloved, the Bible's teaching on election, calling, adoption, perseverance, the doctrines of grace, all of it communicates one truth that we must never forget and it's kind of the foundation for everything that Paul, these virtues that Paul is going to give us. Namely, that if you are a child of God, if you are one of God's chosen people, then for you, everything is a gift. Everything is a gift from God. 
Every aspect of being a Christian is a gift from God. Everything we have from God comes to us as a gift of His sovereign grace. In everything, He is the giver. In everything, He will be the giver. Even in your suffering, He is always the giver. And we are always the beneficiaries of His gifts. Why do I say even in suffering? Because even that is designed by God for your good. He is always the giver. He is always the giver. It is not that we are giving anything to God. He is always the giver. Even when we give sacrificially of our finances and our time, he is still always in the position of the giver. He is the giver and we are always the receivers. It never works the other way with him. We receive it all, not by effort or works or the achievement of righteousness, but by his grace, free grace, sovereign grace, saving grace, unmerited grace, amazing grace. And because of this grace, which has eternally united us to Jesus, God calls us, watch this, we're talking about identity, okay? Can we just pause a second? I just want to keep you on my train of thought. We're talking about identity because the text is talking about identity. And what I want you to see is all of these virtues come out of your identity in Christ. So what is our identity? Watch what he says. Jesus calls us, verse, verse 12, God calls us chosen, holy, and loved. That is, he chose us from before the creation of the world. We just read that in Ephesians chapter 1. He set us apart for himself like a groom sets apart a woman to marry. That's holy. He set us apart. And not only that, beyond that, he loves us. He loves us. Here's how Paul says it, chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice the word then, T-H-E-N, here. He says, put on then. You know, what, what does he mean by that? Yeah, some, of the, some of the best treasures that you'll find in studying the scripture will come out of one word. Because this one sends us backwards. The word then is synonymous with therefore, and it hints to us that whatever he is about to say is grounded in something he's already said. And what comes immediately before is this statement about our identity in Christ. So don't be in a hurry to try to implement all of these new attitudes and behaviors. First of all, remember who you are. Remember what God made you to be. You see, Paul's, Paul reminds us once, that once upon a time, you were a people, chapter 1, verse 13, who once lived in the domain of darkness. Again, chapter 1, verse 21. 
we were alienated and hostile in mind and personally, personally involved in all kinds of evil. And you may think, well, I, I didn't intend it to be evil. Well, it doesn't matter. If it was contrary to God, it was evil. And all of us were a part of it. We were all a part of the conspiracy against God. And we were not only spiritually bankrupt and blind, we hated the only one who could save us. You say, well, I don't, I don't remember hating him. Listen, if you did everything you could to avoid him, it's because you hated him. If you disobeyed at every point you know you should have obeyed, you were in rebellion against him. But now, by the power of free grace, you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son. By no merit of our own, we have become children of the King and heirs of all that belongs to him. Because God's life-giving, heart-transforming, soul-satisfying grace has had its effect on our souls. Beloved, before you try to implement any of these things, understand who you are. Remember who you were and understand who you are. And that everything that you do and have that glorifies God is a gift from his hand. And so even these things that he's going to mention are by his grace. The message here is simple. The soul-satisfying grace of God in us should make us gracious toward one another. The soul-satisfying grace of God within us should make us gracious to one another. Because the great God of the universe, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords has extended grace to us, we should extend grace to one another. Every one of these virtues finds its root and source in the free grace of God toward us. You have freely received, therefore freely give. Now, I've chosen to call these characteristics virtues, but we could just as easily identify them as graces. If we have them, they came to us by grace. If we minister them, they are expressions of grace. But either way, they are grace. Now, last week, we were reminded that a new relationship with God produces a new relationship with sin. And this time, as I said, Paul is showing us that a new relationship with God produces a new relationship with virtue or a new relationship with grace. But at this point, maybe you can see why I didn't call these graces. It gets a little confusing. I suspect this list is going to require more than a, a message or two, so we better get started. The first piece of the Christian uniform, if we can call it that, because Paul is telling us to put it on, just as he has told us to peel off the stinky, smelly, rancid clothing that we wore before, metaphorically, the first piece of this Christian uniform, so to speak, is the virtue of compassion. The virtue of compassion. Compassion here is literally bowels of compassion. 
In fact, that's the way it's translated in the King James. And that's actually maybe the best translation. The ancient people thought of strong emotions as originating not in the brain or in the heart, but in the bowels. The word speaks of tenderness expressed toward those who suffer. Compassion is a word repeatedly used of Jesus, who often had a compassionate reaction to people in need. For example, there was that one occasion in, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, that he had compassion on the leaderless multitude. They were like scattered sheep without a shepherd. You know what the problem is with that? To be a scattered sheep without a shepherd? You're in danger. The shepherd is there to lead them, to protect them, to feed them. You have no shepherd. You're in a world of hurt. You're out on your own. When Jesus saw the multitude, he realized that they were spiritually, they had been spiritually misled. The shepherds they were following were false shepherds. And it's as if, as if these people, these precious people, God's chosen people, had been left alone. And when he came upon them, exhausted as he was in, in Mark chapter 6, he didn't abandon them. He didn't ignore their need, though he had needs as a man. He felt compassion for them. And so he served them. Paul uses the same term in the book of Romans when he appeals to brothers by the mercies of God. Same word in Romans 12.1, which I read a little earlier. And then when he writes to the Corinthians, he calls God the Father of mercies. The Father of mercies, or the Father of compassion. Listen, if you have the ability to be compassionate toward anyone, it is because your Father is the Father of compassion. And he has poured out his compassion on you. He is not nearly as stern and harsh as you think he is. He knows you. He knows your frame. He knows that you are but dust. He treats you like a child, his own precious child. Why should we have compassion on others? Well, because God has had so much compassion toward us. We were lost, without hope, without God in the world. He could have ignored our plight. He had every good reason to ignore us. No, he had every good reason to condemn us. And it would have been a just condemnation. He could have left us in our own desperate straits. He could have turned his back to our need. I have to confess something to you. I went to the grocery store this week to pick up some things for the church office, and on my way out, I heard a, a woman saying, Sir, from across the parking lot, Sir, and I got in my car because I was busy, and I didn't have any money anyway, and I drove off, and I got about halfway to the office, and the Lord smote my heart. 
I don't know why on that occasion, probably because God knew that I'd be preaching this and needed to hear it. What I did to that woman, God never did to me. He never walks away when I cry out to him. And Paul is saying, therefore, you should not ignore the needs of those who have needs if you are able. This is compassion. Because we have received his compassion, we should be a compassionate, even sacrificially compassionate people. We should look out for every opportunity to have compassion on others, to have mercy on others. Is there anyone during this COVID-19 pandemic on whom you might show compassion? Is there someone who needs to hear from you? Someone who needs to be ministered to? It's so easy just to pull up the drawbridge at home and not have interactions with anyone else. Well, the second piece of Christian, the Christian uniform is the virtue of kindness. And several of these Christian virtues are among the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22, and this is one of them. The Greek word that Paul uses here is a combination of goodness, kindness, and graciousness. Paul loved, Paul was a master of words, and he invented a lot of words. And this one, he takes three words and he squashes them all together. It is the the virtue of the spirit, that the Spirit produces in us that tempers one's natural tendency toward being harsh. Harsh. In Luke 6.35, we're told that God shows kindness even to people who are evil and ungrateful. He causes to the sun to shine on the evil and the good. He causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good. As Christians, when we are treated badly for whatever reason, we don't need to respond tit for tat. We don't need to take revenge. In fact, it's forbidden. Read Romans 12. We can still be kind, and we can remember that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, perhaps our, con- our, our kindness will have the same effect on them. A good example of kindness is the story of the Good Samaritan. This is an extreme, perhaps, maybe not in the eyes of God, but a picture of what it means to be kind and compassionate and merciful. You remember the story Here, this man was an outsider. He wasn't even a Jew. Jesus is talking to Jews. And just to drive home the point right through their hearts, he says, the hero of this story is a man that you ethnically hate. And yet he is the only one of the men who came upon him who actually stopped. And at his own expense, He gave what he had to care for the man. It's amazing, isn't it, the story? There are ministries named Good Samaritan. We see Samaritan a lot in Christian communities. Some churches are named Good Samaritan. There are addiction programs named Good Samaritan. There's all kinds of things. And we lose what Jesus' point was in this text. 
he was kind. He expressed, this outsider expressed God's kindness, God-like kindness to this man he didn't know. Well, let's move on. The third virtue is humility. Anybody want to leave yet? <laughs> humility is the opposite of self-exaltation and self-service. Humility was not considered a virtue in the pagan world. It was thought to be a sign of weakness. The New Testament, however, Gabeline says, deepened the, and enriched its meaning and made it one of the noblest graces. And, of course, the reason for that is because the Lord came in such humility. Humility is a virtue that's exalted by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 on this very count where we are told in chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, here is the command, and it's connected to the gospel story. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, don't try to climb on top of each other to get the first place. Kids, when you get in the car, don't fight over which seat you get in. Freely offer it to your younger siblings, and your parents will have heart failure. <laughs> Do nothing, not even, not even take the best seat, not even take the first cookie, not even take the last bite. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, now, notice he's saying count it or reckon it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. But who are we to decide what's true in this regard? We are to treat one another the way God treats us. I love that part in, at the end of Psalm 23 where he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's just really interesting in, in the culture of the Hebrews that has lasted for millennia that anointing the head with oil, you know, maybe it was a shepherd anointing the sheep I think it was the tradition of anointing the head of the honored guest at the party with a perfume that smelled beautifully, and everybody knew who the honored guest was because he, he smelled good. He had the anointing on his head. And here is this table, and it's laid out for, before him. Why? Because he's the honored guest. And here he has this cup that the Lord keeps filling and filling and filling. Why? Because he's the honored guest. And I think David is saying, Lord, you treat me as if I'm the honored guest. You're God. And what does God do? God doesn't assert himself at the table of communion the first day, first time it happened, evening. But rather than asserting himself into the position that he truly was worthy of. He took off his garments. He wrapped himself in a towel. And he washed their feet. Stunning. 
and I haven't finished reading that text. Let each of you look not only to his own interest. He's not saying don't have any self-interest at all. Enjoy life. But while you're enjoying life in your interactions with other people, put the other one first. Let each of you not look at his own interest, but also of the interest of others. Why? Well, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Anybody else here in the form of God? He was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he, here's the key phrase, emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let me say that another way. God became man. The man, Christ Jesus. And by the way, I can't help but note that Paul says here that this attitude is, watch this, is yours, how? In Christ Jesus. You ever seen that before? I'm telling you, you're going to see it everywhere now. It's yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have the capacity to relate to one another with all humility because it comes to us as part of our union with Christ. That is, it comes to us by grace. And since Jesus exercised humility, we who are in him can rank ourselves other, under others for their good just as Jesus did for us. Like Paul's world, ours doesn't appreciate humility. You become a, a stone or a carpet to step on. But it is a precious grace in the eyes of God. May the Lord find us to be not only a knowledgeable people, but a humble people. Knowledge puffs up, but biblical knowledge should not do that. It should cause us to love in all humility. Let's see, do we have time for one more? How about, thank you, brother, the virtue of meekness. Let's talk about meekness. The usual term for, in our parlance, is gentleness. We would say, if we were transcribing this, of course, this is a word that's closely related to humility. Meekness is not the same as being spineless. Rather, it is, listen carefully, it is submissiveness when one is being provoked. It's just like choosing not to be harsh when you could be. In this case, you're not being provoked. You're meek. You have your emotions under control. You have your mouth under control. And by God's grace, and this is the hardest part, you have your mind under control. It's a willingness to suffer rather than inflict suffering. Accordingly, to Jesus, meekness is a description of his own heart. I think I mentioned this a while back, that there was only one place in the Bible where Jesus speaks about his own heart. 
And here, Dane Ortland writes, The one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, we are not told that he is austere and demanding at heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly at heart. Now, I know this is a repetition from something I said a couple of weeks ago. But, beloved, we've got to get this. And if we're going to get it, we're going to need to first see it in Jesus, who deserved everything, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, and yet he suffered. And when he suffered... He did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How do you respond when you don't get your way? How do you respond when someone does something you don't like? Or there's a decision made by one of your authorities that you don't agree with? The word lowly here often is translated meek. And meek has the connotation of being destitute. Or poor. I mean, people who are meek, at least in, in that day, were people who were kind of the down and outers. In fact, uh, the word can mean to thrust down. And so Jesus uses that word for himself. This is my heart. <laughs> you think, well, what does that mean? You're thrust down? What does that mean? Jesus says he is lowly, he's employing the photonegative of lofty and out of reach. You come upon a poor person, you don't have to jump through any hoops to get to them. You just walk up and introduce yourself. There is no bodyguards, there are no people keeping you away. There are no throngs of admirers. You're just completely accessible. And so is Jesus, lowly, meek. It means he's approachable. He's accessible. He's always accessible. Do you realize that even when you sin, he is still accessible? This is wonderful news, isn't it? It tells us that Jesus is not hard to reach. You don't have to jump through any spiritual hoops to get to him. And you don't have to go through Mary. And you don't have to go through any of the saints. He is totally and completely approachable. The minimum bar to be enfolded by the embrace of Jesus, as Ortland says, is simply this. Open yourself to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing that works. But the question for us is, are you approachable? Or are you aloof? Do you hold yourself above others, if not in body, then in mind? To whom are you naturally attracted? Do you ever... Go outside of your comfort zone intentionally. Not to minister to people that you know are lower than you. 
but rather simply to image forth the glory of Christ. I think this list is um, appropriate in our time because there is so much controversy. I never get my phone out in the middle of this sermon, but we are at the end. And I got this from someone this morning. Pastoring a church in 2020 is like this. Three weeks ago, church member number one, pastor, why in the world are you reopening church services so soon? Church member number two, pastor, why in the world did you shut down church services in the first place? Two weeks ago, church member number one, pastor, you don't seem to care about the struggling minorities. Church member number two, pastor, why haven't you been more supportive of the police? A week ago, church member number one, require masks. I mean, clearly you don't care about human lives. Church member number two, require masks. Clearly you don't care about human liberty. And then kind of humorously at the end, he says, the pastor prays, Lord, are you sure you don't want me to be a used car salesman? I wrote back to him, I said, obviously this man has been reading my email. <laughs> Listen, the reason I share that with you is there are good, wonderful, godly people. We can very easily be sucked into forgetting all of this. Forgetting what it means to love one another in a crisis. To be merciful, to be kind, to be compassionate to be approachable, to be generous, to be hospitable, all of these things, especially now when tensions run high in so many different directions, the world needs to see God's chosen people wearing their uniform. And this is it. And I'll give you a preempt on next week. All of the pieces of this uniform are tied together at the middle by love. It's the way Paul intended it. Oh, may we be found faithful. Beloved, the soul-satisfying grace of God should make us gracious toward one another. Let's pray. Lord, we know that um, left to ourselves, without your grace, actively moving in our hearts, we would do none of this. And we would be satisfied in doing none of it. And Lord, you, your love compels us. Your love for us controls us, or should, if we are seeking you and setting our minds on you, remembering that you rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son by grace, by pure grace. Help us, Father, to be alert to when we are being tempted to do anything less to one another and those who are on the outside. These things, Father, we ask that you would be gracious in producing them in us by your Spirit. Amen and amen.